Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today Sarah's going to go ahead and go first. What are you talking about, Sarah? I'm going to talk about crude oil. Ooh. So um, my mom was recently visiting me and her boyfriend used to work for uh, Texaco and he used to work um, on the oil field. So it was kind of interesting to talk to him about it. And I honestly didn't really, I kind of had a half idea of what happens to crude oil when it comes out of the ground and what it looks like and how it is. And it turns out when it comes right out of the ground, you can't like immediately put it in your car. It would really be more like using to pave roads, the kind of stuff that comes out of the ground. Yeah. It's actually really thick and it, it has to do a lot of cooking and refining before you can use it. So I I thought maybe that was probably true for a lot of people that many people don't really know the process of getting gasoline, excuse me, into our cars. We have a general idea, maybe half idea, or maybe no idea. So I thought I'd talk about it in case you are one of those people like me. Gasoline, like I said, is actually a product of refining the the refining process of crude oil or oil as it's come out of the ground, you know, the Texas tea with the Beverly Hillbillies got out of the ground and became rich and moved to Beverly Hills with. Crude oil is actually a mix of different hydrocarbon chains of different lengths. The amount of hydrogen and carbon in the chains determines the grade of crude oil it is. Depending on the mix of hydrocarbons and their size, it determines the grade of the crude, like sweet crude, light crude, heavy crude, sour crude, and the term sweet or sour, seriously, (laughs) like they're gummy bears. (laughs) The term sweet or sour is determined by how much sulfur is in it, so I guess... uh, the sweeter it is, the less sulfur it has in it, which makes sense. There's a logic to that, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And the crude oil changes depending on where it comes from in the world, which I found fascinating because it's essentially dinosaur juice. And the mix of dinosaurs and plants that you know, we're taking out of the rock in the ground is different everywhere you go because species were different, etc. So the Texas crude is going to be different than the crude that says, say, comes out of Canada or comes out of the Gulf or comes out of uh, Oman or any of the countries in the Middle East. To get the different products that we use, we refine the oil, like I said, using distillation. I mentioned distillation in a previous episode, I think, when I talked about making gasoline from plastics. I think I briefly mentioned that. Mm -hmm. So you can take the plastic and then make and turn it back into um, gasoline, which is cool. The crude is heated and then fed into a distillation unit. And these are really big on the refining plant. These are giant towers, basically, and they're uh, fractional distillation units, so there's sections in them. In the, additional, uh, in the distillation unit, the vapors cool, condense, and collect into different liquids. Gasoline, naphtha, diesel, and kerosene are on the top layers because they are made of lighter molecules. The heavier molecules are lower in the distillation chamber and include heavy oil and lubricating oils. 
So the heavy oil then undergoes a process called cracking. And since heavy oil is full of long strains of hydrocarbons, and the, and the cracking then breaks up these molecules into more useful hydrocarbons. So they're smaller hydrocarbon chains, and they're easier to use. Naphtha, which is very similar to gasoline, is also reformed so that it's closer to the structure of gasoline and can be used similarly like gasoline. And then gasoline is generally blended to obtain better uh, octane standards because like the battle beetle takes premium. She needs 93 or higher as as uh, Volkswagen has told me and maybe your car takes regular or mid-grade or you need to have more ethanol. It really just depends on the engine and that's what you see at the pump when you see those numbers like 87, 89, 93 or anything in between. Because as I said, different engines need different kind of gasoline. And the gasoline is also treated to remove the sulfur. And the sulfur then goes on, this is interesting, into things like fertilizers and medicine. Oh. Yeah. Isn't that well, interesting? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Industrial processes very rarely waste anything they can make money off of. Egg smell. That's all I can think <laughs> of. <laughs> yeah. Sulfur. Apparently, it's extremely stinky if you have like heavy sour crude is really disgustingly oh, stinky. Well, and it's probably super sticky. Yes. Ugh. Very. Yes. Ugh. So the Atlantic had a really cool video that they broke down into the amount of products uh, you can get out of a, four, say, like a 45-gallon barrel of crude oil. Um, so 19 of the 45 gallons will become gasoline. 11 of the 45 gallons will become diesel fuel. And about four gallons of the 45 gallons will be aviation fuel, which is a lot fewer than I thought. Yeah, aviation fuel is really specific. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it is peculiarly well suited for being replicated in biodiesel, Mm -hmm. which is totally unrelated to your topic. Mm -hmm. But it is different enough that biodiesel is a better option for jet fuel replacement. Interesting. I had no idea. And then the rest of the barrel will become petroleum coke, uh, asphalt, lubricants, and plastic. So if you didn't know, plastic is made out of hydrocarbon chains, unless you make it out of corn. Um, but generally it is a petroleum byproduct, and that's how we make plastic, just so you know. I don't think many people know that, or maybe they do. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's the whole point of this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't actually know that until uh, two years ago that plastic was made out of petroleum. I had no idea. I've known that for a long time, but my dad's also a science teacher, and yeah. I also have a background in science, so mm-hmm. that probably helped. I have a background in people science, so we don't talk yeah, I mean, about it plastic. Yeah. <laughs> Except maybe like the history of Bakelite and Lucite. Oh yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much where the gasoline to fill up your battle beetle or whatever you're driving comes from. It it comes out of the ground. You can't use it immediately. Don't put it in your car if you just if you strike gold like uh, <laughs> the Beverly Hillbillies. You're going to have to build a refining plant first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, did, did you ever see the Beverly Hillbillies movie? Which one? The, the newest. I'm making air quotes because I think it was maybe late 90s, early 2000s. It is such a funny movie. <laughs> and oh, I need to suggest it to the podcast, The Unlucky Ones. Because they, they tend to cover movies that were sort of unlucky in their reception mm. when they're actually pretty good movies. 
Uh, my mom, growing up, that was her favorite show. So we used to watch Beverly Hills Billies together all the time. And we we always, I, Granny's always been my favorite. Yeah. She's hilarious. She really is. It's a really charming family and concept. Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, I have a funny early petroleum discovery story for you. Mm. So I didn't know Sarah was doing crude oil until like last night. So I don't know this guy's name, but the guy that discovered petroleum jelly, he noticed that the drills were getting all junked up when they were drilling for oil early on. And he was like, well, what the heck is this stuff? And he, you know, filtered it so that it was what we're used to, the sort of yellowish Mm -hmm. petroleum grease. And he spent his entire life, which was like 89 plus years or something like that. He lived a long time. Uh, extolling the virtues of petroleum jelly and how it was great to eat. He would what? eat he would eat two tablespoons a day. What? I'm not recommending this. No. Nope. He, he did live a long time. And how useful it could be around the house and how useful it was for wound dressing. And he's not entirely wrong. It is actually a pretty useful product. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a stroke in his late, I want to say late 60s. And he demanded his nurse coat his body in petroleum jelly every day. So he could slide across the floor. I guess. <laughs> and then he lived another like 25 years. Wow. I wonder if you eat a lot of petroleum jelly. Like if, you're, if your uh, poop just slides out really easily and that's why. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are places where it was still used at the time of the the book I read called The Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, oh, where petroleum jelly like was book. used as a spread on toast. That's really disgusting. Yeah, I don't, again, I don't recommend eating it. It's fine <laughs> as like a skin protectant or perhaps to like polish furniture. But yeah, the so the guy that discovered, I guess, petroleum jelly was a, a real enthusiast and he was long lived, so yeah. that's good. It wasn't like he told you to eat it and then died a year later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he was a living testament to his life's work, <laughs> being at least not complete garbage. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I I knew almost nothing about crude oil except what happens in oil spills because I covered oil. Yeah, spills. I know that was a good episode. You guys should listen to this to that next. Yeah, this is a good uh, sort of b- starter for that. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm changing topics completely. Okay, cool. So it's October. Yeah. Sarah, do you believe in ghosts? Yes. Cool. I'm a ghost agnostic. Okay. I don't know what I don't know. And I'm not here to contradict anyone unless it's like obvious they're having a stroke or something or like there's carbon monoxide in the air. And then I'm like, yeah, that's what you're dealing huh. with. But otherwise I'm like, well, I don't know what I don't know. So where do ghosts go? What's a ghost? So a ghost is the spirit, soul, memory, or essence of an animal or a human that has died and appears to the living. Mm. So there are some very strict components there. And I wanted to talk about what different types of ghosts there are. And I did not realize until I started researching this that I did not give myself enough time to thoroughly (laughs) research this. So I guarantee there are gaps in... What I am discussing, and it, you, you um, are you going to touch upon Japan's ghosts because that's an entire podcast in itself, only in relation to a possessed toy. Okay, all right. Because yeah, a lot of 
I would point people to the Revenant episode after this one. After, after you listen to the oil spill episode to compliment Sarah's, you might consider listening to the Revenant episode. You should listen to the Revenant one anyway. Yeah. It's actually one of our more popular ones. Uh, so ghosts are a universal concept, a universal human concept. Every culture has some kind of ghost lore or understanding of spirit or soul or something like that living on. And it's also not terribly uncommon for that spirit or soul to not be human-based. That's actually a common component of revenants, and particularly Japanese ghosts are not always human. A lot of times they're demons right, or animals. So they weren't initially a living thing. So there's some like, there's some slushiness with ghost versus demon versus revenant versus other things. So I'm going over some types of ghosts. Geist, ghast, and spiritus are some extremely old Western terms for ghosts. Geist stems from negative, rageful words in Old German. Spiritus and ghast both meant soul, spirit, or breath, or blast. Hmm. So the association with sort of feeling a, a chill or a cold wind or, or something like that and a ghost has has been around for a long time. I mentioned geist and so poltergeist that means noisy ghost in German. <laughs> and poltergeists are have been increasingly common since the 17th century in terms of ghost lore. Hmm. They can move stuff they're almost ubiquitous in human cultures. So the ability to move things or make noises. And they're usually not particularly pleasant. They, it, it's considered often a harassing ghost. Uh, the, here are some other terms for ghost you may have heard that I just kind of like. Haint. <laughs> it's a southeastern U.S. term for ghost. I like the term haint a lot. Yeah. Uh, wraith is a Scots word for ghost. Uh, there's fetch and doppelganger. Mm. Those are apparitions of a living person. Mm-hmm. So those are not quite ghosts, but not quite not. Uh, there's shade and umbra, which are Latin. Uh, spook is actually a Dutch word. I didn't know that. I didn't either. There's specter, phantasm, phantom. I think oni is a pretty common ghost in Japan. Soul. The soul is the essence of a person what makes them themselves, and is often a religious concept. It makes up the ghost in a lot of instances of ghosts. There's a Mm. religious concept of a soul in most cultures. Now, revenant are the dead coming back for revenge. But like I said before, they're not always a ghost. They can be demonic. They can be just the undead. So it can be a, a corporeal body. A ghost typically does not have a physical essence to it. Mm-hmm, right. Poltergeists are kind of the exception. So where do all these things go? I had mentioned that ghosts have to appear to the living. So haunting. They haunt people. They haunt places. A ghost mm-hmm. can appear in a place or in association with an object or a person. So they can follow a person around or hang out with an object or stay in one location. They can appear very concretely. It's like a, an apparition of a human or an animal body, like mm-hmm. ghost cats. There's a whole... Southern, southeastern United States ghost cat phenomenon. Last podcast on the left did an episode on that. Oh, cool. It's very interesting. Yeah. 
Or they can appear in photographs as orbs. that You can feel a vapor or a cold air, hear sounds, see movements of objects. There are haunted places. So if a ghost gets sort of trapped in a place, it's usually because their soul is attached to the place due to their death or a large portion of their life was spent in that place. It's not uncommon for a violent death or a large number of violent deaths to create hauntings. That's sort of a... It's a not uncommon component of ghost lore that either a ghost is the result of a sudden, violent, unexpected death, like a haunted battlefield, a haunted insane asylum, a haunted hotel where lots of people have died, or close personal relationships with people. Like a lot of people report their grandparents passing away and then watching over them, things like that. So it can be negative or positive, And it kind of just depends on, a lot of time on the circumstances of the death of the person. It's not uncommon for large institutions, popular places and areas with violent or socially interesting histories to be considered haunted and have large numbers of people reporting ghost sightings. Interesting. Uh, there are a lot of Civil War battlefields that are considered haunted. The whole Indian burial ground concept, it's not, I, I doubt it's universally acknowledged, but it should be that indigenous peoples in North America and South America have not exactly been treated well. No. Including in relation to their deaths and their sacred places. And the movie Poltergeist actually briefly touches on that. Uh, they build a subdivision on top of an Indian burial ground. Was that like the first movie really that that mentioned the haunting of basically people putting structures over Indian burial grounds that kind of riffed on that? Because it's been a story for a long time, but I feel like those were the first movies that really like had it known. I know that, and I don't know when The Shining was published, but Stephen King wrote a series of, I want to say seven, but it might be five, short stories about the Overlook Hotel before, it's called Before the Play, these okay. five short stories, and it's about the building of the Overlook Hotel, which is the hotel in The Shining, mm-hmm. and one of them indicates it was built on an Indian burial ground. Oh, okay. And so... I think that was before the Poltergeist movies came out or concurrent. Okay. It's unlikely they inspired each other. And so it, I feel like it must be an older concept than Poltergeist. Interesting. Movie Twitter, film Twitter, help us out. Well, it's a, it's a common story before move, the movie era of uh, angry native souls, as far as I can tell, yeah. were to come up, especially in the old stories of the Old West. Yeah, and it's kind of a depressingly racially charged concept anyway in that like oh so all the indigenous people are gone they're dead so their ghosts are angry violent and miserable and they're causing us problems mm-hmm. and it's like well <laughs> right that's not accurate in any way mm-hmm. <laughs> so i've got some sort of ghostly thoughts that are not uncommon uh, some cultures think that a ghost will stay on earth until there's nobody alive to remember them so a ghost is stuck until nobody remembers them and then they kind of just disappear It's a major plot point in the film Coco by Pixar. Ancestors are worshipped and appeased in a lot of cultures, so ghosts will stick around their families. It's considered that they're likely to stick around their families. It's assumed that they will often come back angry or just hungry, 
So (laughs) (laughs) serving them food is a not, it's very common, honestly, to offer food to ancestors. It includes its component of rituals of Dia de los Muertos, the Chinese Ghost Festival, Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. If you think about leaving tokens of gratitude or pouring out alcohol on a grave or burying people with food for the afterlife. Food is acknowledged as critically important to human survival. And so it's also treated as critically important to ghost happiness. So a lot of times ghosts will come back to get fed. It's not always negative. They're not always like furious that they don't have food. It's Dia de los Muertos in particular has a lot of connotations of visiting with family members and having yes. food be a component of it. So it's considered a positive thing. It's like, hey, let's have a little ceremony party thing. It's not the Mexican Halloween. No, it's Ugh. different. It's almost like a wake, an annual mm-hmm. wake almost. So ghosts can hang out with their families. They can hang out in places. They can hang out on earth. They can possess people. Uh-oh. If you believe in ghosts. Spirits, ghosts, and et cetera are assumed to take control of a person in a possession, causing them to do things that are counter to what the person would usually do. Ugh. And usually it's negative things. Very rarely do you hear about somebody being possessed by a ghost and then running the, the best 100, 100 yard dash they've ever run. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not typically considered something where people uh, do well. <laughs> <laughs> they usually like their heads turn around and they right. start vomiting. It's usually people that end up possessed and things are usually haunted, but possessed toys or haunted toys are kind of an in-between. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Sarah has seen some haunted looking dolls in her time. I probably own some haunted dolls. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, dolls in particular have been a human, it's, it's another almost universal concept of basically a container for a soul or a suitable container for a soul and i think it's because they're small portable and look like humans but often look a little weird Mm -hmm. so they're unnerving but they are also you know human-like annabelle is a popular movie franchise i've actually never seen any of them but i hear good things Mm. and annabelle is an actual doll but it's a raggedy ann doll it doesn't look anything like the doll from the movies Mm -hmm. And then there's Robert the doll, who's pretty famous. He was the inspiration for Chucky. He lives in a museum in Key West, Florida, and is allegedly very thoroughly possessed. Oh, wow. I w- it, it's so much so that I don't want to be anywhere near that toy. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because dolls have their own creep factor anyway. Mm-hmm. They're a little unnerving, and then I don't want to be anywhere near a doll that is considered especially unnerving. <laughs> So this is a side note to anyone that cares. I love dolls. I love creepy dolls. And they seem to find their way to me. Like people will bring them to me. And I think it's (laughs) hilarious that I am the person like, oh, look at this creepy doll. And they'll take a picture and send it to me. Or they'll actually buy the thing and give it to me. That's awesome. (laughs) You are a caretaker for the the lost souls. (laughs) That's actually a good story. It is a good story. Yeah. (laughs) Agatha Christie wrote a really good short story about a haunted doll. Oh, nice. And rarely do I think Agatha Christie's stories are scary. They're Mm -hmm. usually, you know, a little thrilling and then the mystery is solved and somebody fell in love and blah, blah, blah. They're fun little novels. But this was a genuinely scary story. (laughs) 
And it's funny how people are so creeped out by them. Mm -hmm. And it's not like funny, funny. It's like funny, weird to me. Like they don't really creep me out. I find it fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. It is. Uh, There is Okiku, a doll who was possessed by the girl who owned her. Mm. And allegedly her hair continues to grow and is regularly trimmed by the caretaker at the temple where she resides. Interesting. There's also Pulau Ubin Barbie. It's a possessed Barbie that resides in a temple in Singapore. Oh, fantastic. And there are several other possessed toys that are fairly Mm -hmm. well known. And so possession tends to lead to exorcism, because as I said, possession tends to be considered negative. Possession can also be explained by things like strokes, Alzheimer's disease and dementia, mood disorders and personality disorders, power of suggestion, the actual like obsession with possession. Mm-hmm. So possession is a it's it's almost like manifesting your own stigmata. So it's almost like a religious mania. Yeah, which is kind of power of suggestion. So there are a lot of very clear, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in the exorcism section of my little talk. But there are very clear indicators that a lot of possessed people are in fact just unwell people yeah. or people who are having a hard time, and then are often not offered proper care and treatment Mm. or even people who aren't unwell and are just counter to social expectations at the time. We'll talk about that too. Uh, But we'll start, we'll we'll move on. So ghosts may possess toys or people. They may also be brought forth by the living to talk to them. So spiritualism was a major movement in Europe and then in the Americas. And it's, a somewhat modern manifestation of what's basically ancestor worship that humans have done forever of trying to talk to the dead Mm -hmm. and spiritualism was very formal in that the entirety or almost the entirety of its guess religious canon was contacting the dead and talking to the dead. It's attempting to contact the dead through single or group work using a specific set of tools the ghost may be contacted from the great beyond, so they may come be called forth from the afterlife or just from their surroundings, like if somebody's haunting someone else. A lot of the spiritualism tools can be explained by the idiomotor phenomenon, which is small unconscious movements by a human in response to their surroundings and their psychology. Mm-hmm. There, and a lot of spiritualist tools were like very obviously easy to impact with the idiomotor phenomenon. Uh, table turning and seances were a major spiritualism practice, and they would literally involve a table rotating under the hands of the participants. It could also include asking for knocking, voices, lights flickering, etc. Harry Houdini actually spent a huge portion of his career debunking spiritualist table yes. turners, and it was because he loved his mother dearly, and she died, and he really wanted to talk to her again, and he was furious that people were taking advantage of the bereaved by pretending to talk to the dead and taking money from people to try to make them you know, feel good for a short amount of time when it was all stagecraft. He has a point. Uh, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> Harry Houdini was a pretty cool guy. Automatic writing is another 
often impacted by idiomotor effect, spiritualism practice. It's channeling or requesting inspiration from the deceased and then writing with a pen or pencil and paper or a pencil on a planchette, which is like the Ouija board thing. Yeah. On paper and either having the ghost talk to you and you write what they say or talk through you. So like a temporary possession. Mm-hmm. So it's assumed that ghosts can potentially do that. Ouija board. We, we could do a whole podcast on Ouija boards. Mm-hmm. I think they're really interesting. I had one. They are. They're kid. cool. And it's using a board that has an alphabet on it, numbers. It often has yes or no, thank you, goodbye, etc. As And then a little pointer or a planchette or a pendulum that is used to point to spell out words or phrases to get somebody to talk to you. Uh, and again, idiomotor effect because your your hands are on something. And so it's not uncommon for people to either intentionally or unintentionally move stuff around. And if you get enough people, like I'm, I have my hands one way and the other person has their hands the other way. And even though we're not pushing, like we are kind of, our bodies are moving, so it's going to appear to move. Yep. Even your pulse can move things. Exactly. Especially if you're excited. Uh, so I don't remember, I don't know if you remember this, but in the like late 90s, early 2000s, there was a huge boom in ghost hunting shows and reality shows where they'd pop a family into an asylum or something with a yes. camera up their nose <laughs> <laughs> and then make them do a lot of these things like automatic writing or they'd record sounds or they would use EMF monitors and, and Gauss meters to check magnetic frequencies and dowsing rods and thermometers and photographs and video to try to capture evidence of hauntings. And Linda Blair was involved with this. She was the host of several of these shows. I loved them as a kid. They were very thrilling, <laughs> but I was also a kid. <laughs> and I really genuinely think that ghost hunting is the new spiritualism. There's a, there's a show that's very popular right now called BuzzFeed Unsolved, and it involves a skeptic and a believer, and they go to allegedly haunted locations, and the believer is, is like, yeah, okay, and the skeptic is like, come kill me, demons, <laughs> come at me, <laughs> if you don't kill me tonight, you're not real, <laughs> so... I think it's just a, a, a morphing of spiritualism into, you know, it's more secular, for a lot of people, but it's still a lot of times they'll interview Catholic priests and a lot of times they'll interview ghost hunters. And it's the type of thing where, of course, you have to have tools to measure phenomena, but what are you actually measuring? And I'll say with the dowsing rod thing, I have used dowsing rods in a job uh, when I worked with septic repair and permitting and things like that. In order to find septic lines underground, you can actually use dowsing rods. What? Yeah, so you walk across a septic field and the rods will cross at the disturbed ground of the septic line. And it sounds like crap. It sounds like complete crap, but I would use it all the time. And it was correct. Or you find a That's rock. That's so crazy. You might find a rock or a tree root or you find disturbed ground. So there are differences, and the, the theory is it has to do with magnetic frequencies coming from the Earth, but who knows? Huh, okay. So I wasn't measuring the water in the lines. I wasn't measuring septic system ghosts, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was measuring... Ghosts. 
I was measuring mm-hmm. disturbed ground. From so. what you've told me about septic systems, like there may actually be ghosts in them, though. I mean, it's if people have died in them, I mean. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a that's an ugly death. Yeah, that could terrible. lead to a haunting. So, anyway, that's my agnostic take on. I'm not going to tell these people they're wrong, but I am going to say that I definitely found septic lines with thousand rounds and not ghosts. Unless they were ghost septic lines. (laughs) So that leads me to exorcism. It's, as as stated in in the movie Beetlejuice, death for the dead. It's a removal of a ghost from a person or a place. There are versions of exorcism in Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Taoism, and probably other religious practices. Exorcism is real common, which makes a lot of sense because if ghosts are a universal concept... And angry ghosts are kind of a universal concept. Then, let's see if we can get rid of them. Would be an, a, a you know a logical next step. Exorcism is done usually with ceremonies that can involve anything from just like in Judaism. It seems like they just talk to the ghost and are like, "Hey, what's wrong? <laughs> what can we do to help you?" Mm-hmm. And then in Christianity, there are people that have been killed during their exorcisms. Yes, and so. It's, it can be a range of activities that either appease the possessing spirit or enrage it, get it to get out, or threaten it with religious tools, whatever, it depends. Unfortunately, exorcism has also been used to attempt to remove things like mental illness yeah. and homosexuality and autism. All things that are perfectly fine to be and have mm-hmm. and are not exorcisable mm-hmm. and often don't require any kind of treatment either. It's part of the rainbow of the human condition. Yeah. So exorcism is kind of an ugly practice in that it's easily exploitable and an easy way to really mistreat people. Yes. In terms of where the ghosts go, because that's my little soapbox of where non-ghost things they don't need to go anywhere. They're fine. Uh, <laughs> really, the ghosts are probably fine, too. Uh, ghosts can just be sent away or, like, sent somewhere else or sent to the afterlife or banished to some other level of existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all, it all depends on where you are and what's going on and who's performing the exorcism. Uh, there was a massive uptick in exorcisms after the movie The Exorcist. Oh, come on. And uh, the, I believe the podcast You're Wrong About does a really good exorcism episode. Huh. A lot of, a lot of podcasts have done true crime-ish episodes about specific exorcisms, particularly because they're essentially murders a lot of the time. Yeah. Like if they result in death, it's not uncommon for the person to have just been murdered. And not necessarily even intentionally, just through neglect or mistreatment, they end up dying, which isn't not murder it's just what is it mens rea (laughs) (laughs) i'm not a lawyer so it's manslaughter at the very least yeah it's something people are responsible yeah and it's not okay so but i believe they do a whole review of exorcism practices particularly after the movie the exorcist ghosts can also just go to the afterlife so they might appear to the living. It's, it's not an uncommon thing to hear a ghost story where someone from your family appears to you or you hear them and then you find out they've died and then mm-hmm. they don't do that again. So yeah. like kind of moment of death appear to the living and then they pass on. 
Uh, the afterlife is a dwelling place for the dead. It may include character judgments, different locations for different qualities of souls. It may be exclusively on earth. It may be exclusively off earth. It may be the type of thing where everyone's included and graded or only the people that are in the know get to get in. I'm actually reading Dante's Inferno right now. It's less dense than I thought it would be. Dante's Inferno is a fascinating novella. It is. Yeah. Uh, I, I was expecting it to be horribly difficult to read, and it's not. It's not. It's actually really interesting. Getting to the afterlife may be automatic after death, may involve a long journey. It, uh, it's a major component of human imagination and mythos. There, may, there are a lot of people who conceptually there's nothing after death. Or that your physical body is deeply connected to what your afterlife is like. So in some instances, a corpse has to be entirely destroyed in order for someone to pass on. They may need to be entirely mummified. And I actually want to do an episode about where mummies go next. Yeah. Because a lot of them got stolen. If it's in a museum, it was probably stolen. Mm-hmm. Just heads up. <laughs> <laughs> or it may be, there's, it's, this is a pretty strong Christian and also uh, Jewish need for physical intactness in order to be physically intact in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. So uh, like tattoos are not acceptable in a lot of Judaism and things like that. It's all, it's all kind of, it depends on your, your tenets that your group follows. Right. There may also just be nothing after death. I think I already said that. Mm-hmm. So those are all places ghosts could go or they could go nowhere because there are no ghosts. <laughs> Ghostly apparitions are considered pseudoscience and have been credibly attributed to Alzheimer's, carbon monoxide poisoning, hallucinogenic drugs, self-delusion, and sleep paralysis. Oh, yeah. So, who knows? <laughs> That's where ghosts go. That's cool. I like that. And uh, in October, I believe in ghosts. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> so when you ask me if I believe in ghosts, yes, it is October. I believe in ghosts. Right on. If you ask me in November, I might have a different story. But in October, I believe in ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good time to believe in ghosts. Exactly. The veil is thin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that's where ghosts go and that's where crude oil goes. Totally unrelated, but I like it. I know. Unless you're talking about like ghosts of microbes. Or ghosts of dinosaurs. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, and algae and stuff. <laughs> Our cars are all haunted <laughs> with enraged prehistoric critters. <laughs> that explains it. It does. They're just, they're like, we had to die. You're going to die too. <laughs> you can uh, follow us on several forms of social media and you can find out more information about us at whereedisitpodcast.com. Yes. If, if you have suggestions, please email us. We get them in person a lot, but feel free to email where does it podcast at gmail.com. And I want your pictures of creepy dolls. Yeah. Yeah. Give us your possessed toys. Not literally. Just give us pictures <laughs> of your possessed toys. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we should go on like a, a creepy doll scavenger hunt or something. Yeah. You'd make my little black heart so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have a creepy doll contest. Yes. Like a beauty contest. Yes. I'm already winning. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have this creepy doll. Oh man, she's so fantastic. She her lips and mouth move when you pull <gasps> her, her lips str- move when her when you pull her string back. Oh, she's so glorious. I love her so much. I need to see this. Yes, yes. We're, we're at my house. Well, next time we <laughs> record at your house, she's so amazing. I think I have a video of her actually that I keep on my phone. Oh man. Will you post it on Instagram? Yes, I will. Yes. <laughs> She's actually on my Instagram, but... Awesome. 